when you actually develop a mental illness, you struggle with that. Like, how? This can't be me. So you go into a state of denial. And today, you know, you hear so much about, well, just speak up. Well, sorry, but I don't want to admit that I'm not well. I don't want to admit that I can't cope. I don't want to admit that I'm struggling. Because if I do, that acknowledges the mental illness. And I don't want to acknowledge it. Yeah. I want to get away from this. So that's one of the reasons why I believe that the people will not talk about it. Because we just don't want to acknowledge it. Yeah. And by getting help, that again is acknowledging it. We want to get through this. We want to be able to survive and keep going. And just give me another bottle. I'll be right, you know. It's okay. (laughs) (laughs) That's Alan Sparks. And this is part one of episode 269 of the Osher Ginsberg podcast. Welcome to the Osher Ginsberg Podcast. I'm Osher Ginsberg, and this is episode 269 of the show with best-selling author and speaker, Alan Sparks. You can find him on Twitter at Alan Sparks, S-P-A-R-K-E-S, and sorry, Alan with two L's, A-L-L-A-N-S-P-R-K-E-S, or on Instagram at Alan, A-L-L-A-N-S-P-R-K-E-S underscore CV. I'll tell you what the CV stands for in just a moment. If you're new to the show, thank you for being here. Let me tell you what this show is. Uh, This podcast is a weekly conversation that you get to be a part of, a conversation that will hopefully help you make today a little bit better than yesterday. Now, sometimes a chat, it'll be someone that you know. Sometimes it'll be with someone you don't know. No matter what, I guarantee you'll hear something you need to hear in the next hour. You're going to hear something that'll help you make today a bit better than yesterday, something you're like, shit, man, I needed to hear that today. Um, and this week's show is absolutely no exception. Uh, big thank you for all the feedback into the uh, two-part format experiment. We're currently experimenting with chopping the show into two, bringing it out on Monday, Monday and a Wednesday. We're going to trial it for a month, see how the numbers are. Basically, what we are finding is that more people listen to more of the show when we slice it in two. Previously to last week, we were doing one big long show, but we've shown that like, when you look at the stats, more people listen to more of it. And um, that makes us all feel good because we work very hard to make sure that all of the show is very, very good. We would like more people to listen to more of it. Um, Thank you very much for all the feedback. You can always email me more feedback, send us your email at gmail.com. Very grateful to hear from you. Please do keep the feedback coming. Thank you again to everybody that sent in a podsy this week. A podsy, it's like a selfie, but it's a photo of what you're looking at right now, taken with the device that you're probably listening to this on. Uh, We had some great pictures from uh, Lila's Veggie Garden in Melbourne, fantastic. Sarah making a hair circlet for her floristry course. I emailed her back. Is that a fancy name for a flower crown? She said, yes, it is. Uh, so, yeah, she was making uh, flower crowns for her uh, floristry course, which very important. My wife got married in a flower crown. Beautiful things. And Greg sent a photo from – I love getting photos from the lab. Greg sent me a photo on the lab from the lab bench testing some uh, mining equipment, which is very exciting. Keep them coming. It's always great to see where you listen. And I also do like to share it so other people can, you know, say, oh, there's another place that I could listen to a show. That might be all right. So 
How are you this week? What's going on? How are you this fine Monday morning? I should re- let you know to, to check in. I'm recording this on a Sunday. It's Sunday afternoon by now. Uh, two days after the sold-out show in Brisbane at the Powerhouse Theatre on Friday night, I can't begin to describe how great that show was. Even Audrey, who said it, she's seen it five times, and she said it was the best one, best one yet. Um, it, it did help a lot to have my former radio colleague Stav in the audience. And and Stav is no, he's one to laugh at the really dark shit. <laughs> so um, they, then in turn, early on, Stav's laughing at the dark stuff, and and so then everyone gets permission to like, oh, we're allowed to laugh at these bits. Oh, okay, and then it really changed changed the night. It's um, it was really great. It was really great to have everybody there. Uh, great to meet everybody after the show. Hearing so many great stories of other people who've taken charge of their health, other people who are taking steps to get the best out of life with the brain that they got and the situation that they're in. Um, it was super special for me. Obviously, you know, Brisbane's my hometown and two of my three brothers were gratefully able to make it along. Uh, if you've read the book, you'll know that my two younger brothers are the people that I Skyped that night in Israel when things got really, really, really bad. Uh, I would not be here talking to you without those men and I'm really grateful they got to come along and hear the show and hear me sing songs about compulsive masturbation. You know, they're my brothers. They know that stuff. The thing is, the absolute truth of the matter, and, um, you know, let's go. Here it is. Life's too short not to be authentic. Um, the absolute truth of the matter is that after playing a sold-out gig to 500 people and then chatting with about 100 of those people after the gig, then hanging out backstage with some friends till late, getting back to the hotel around midnight, eating two delicious donuts right before bed, I was up at 4 a.m. with horrible anxiety. Horrible. It was bad. It was the worst it's been in a long time. Rolling around in bed with a twitches anxiety, trying not to wake up my wife anxiety. By 6am, gripping the bed sheets, wishing for a Valium, sure, being absolutely sure that I was going to call my shrink first thing Monday, talk to him about going back on meds. It was that bad. At that point, I had a bit of a breakthrough. Now, this might not work for everyone. I'm just saying what worked for me. Um, because I found it kind of interesting. When uh, when you close your eyes, if you don't do it if you're driving, but if you close your eyes, um, you don't see darkness. You see kind of greeny blue flashes of light. They're called phosphenes. It's basically, they're like little blotches and sparkles and things like that. It, it, it's caused by random firing of cells in your in your visual system. Uh, I've had it explained to me as like, like your visual system gets kind of bored. So it just kind of throws random information in there and it turns into these weird little shapes and stuff. And so in the past, I've ignored those and tried to meditate and then gone to an internal visualization. So I see a picture in my head instead. I don't, I no longer see these, these flashes of color. However, on Saturday morning, I noticed that the more curious I became about these perfectly normal and healthy visual effects happening, these blotches appearing in my vision with my eyes closed, the more I kind of was interested in what shapes were appearing, um, I noticed that it seemed to keep the visualizing part of my brain occupied, the part of my brain that flashes the thoughts and visions of doom and catastrophe across my mind. They're always visual when I get them. It's not a, you know, an idea. I actually see a picture of, of the thing that's frightening. So as I lay there breathing, it's, it's almost like if you drive a manual car, it's almost like I push or a motorcycle. It's almost like I push the clutch in and disengage the engine of fear in my head for a moment. Like the engine's still revving, I know that, but I was just less attached to it. Eventually my heart rate came down, my breathing became a little more under control and I was able to get back to sleep. 
for about half an hour until my alarm went off at 8.15. But um, later on, on the plane home, I tried it again when I was awake on the plane home, just trying to regulate some emotion that was going on. And I did it again this morning. And now I'm a sample size of one. Uh, I haven't found any research that backs up what it is I'm talking about. I had a look before I recorded this because I wanted to be, you know, honest with you. I'm day two of giving it a shot. I did find a little bit about like some people use that focusing on those visions as a way to get into a meditative state. I did find a bit of vision about that, but um, footage about that, sorry. But so far it seems to be a, a useful and effective way to kind of help me combat the monkey mind that shows up sometimes when my brain's searching for things to fear. Now, I know that I know that the things in my brain and the things that I'm worrying about, I have no control over. I know that. However, when I wake up, the part of my brain that can rationally respond to those thoughts, it's not awake yet. That's the cr- tricky, tricky part. That part of my brain hasn't woken up yet. Just the fear part of my brain's woken up. So the rationalizing part hasn't woken up yet. So to have a bit of a new technique to help me in that situation is pretty, it's pretty good. And I'll, I'll let you know how I go. I'll also let you know what I plan to do about the meds because, like I said, it was getting to a peak there and I promised Audrey and I promised you that I wouldn't get my, grip my teeth and try to get through it like last time because I know exactly where that ends me up and I do not want to go there again. So um, even though I stood on stage on Friday night and you know talked about uh, being off medication, I am very, very well aware that being back on medication is a thing that will probably definitely happen in my life. And that's okay. It's okay. I might need a bit of support to get through some heavy lifting ahead of me yet. We'll see how we go. It was, I guess, the other thing that made it particularly bad the other day. Um, just a trigger warning here. Um, if you're having a, you know, a tough time or, or, you know, someone in your life you lost to suicide, just skip forward a minute and a half and I'll, I'll see you when I'm talking about Alan. Um, it was very, very hard the other day because someone quite close to us in our community here in Bronte lost his life to suicide this week. And um, both Audrey and I, we found out right before we went on stage on Friday. Um, we were calling his number all day and he wasn't answering because we'd heard it might have happened, but it was bloody horrible, actually. Um, it's so sad. It's so tragic. He was such a good guy. He was working so hard. Um, if you're listening to this and you need help, please don't search for a permanent solution to a temporary problem. Just know that you just need to pick up the phone and talk to someone. Don't text just call. Call a human. If you don't know a human, if no one's awake that you know or you want to admit to, call Lifeline. one three one 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 four. I believe 13 11 14 is the easy way to remember it. That's the number in Australia, at least. If that idea in your brain becomes a good idea, make that phone call, please. You, you can't undo that choice. And I can't go back in time and make that person that we knew call somebody, but I can ask you to remember this right now. If you ever find yourself in that situation, call somebody. I'm sorry to bum you out, but these are the stakes, all right? That's two people in two months. They've been close to me and Audrey. So just remember, just call someone. Call anyone. Just bloody call someone. Don't, I'm going to have to write a jingle about that. Okay, so 
Before we get to my guest today, Alan, who's amazing, I did want to thank everyone on the Facebook groups for being just so great this week. A lot of excellent support there for everybody. You can find the link to that uh, Facebook group. It's a Facebook group just for people who listen to this show. Um, you can find the link to that at osherginsberg.com. That's where you'll also find the link to join up to the mailing list, which I am very grateful to have back up and running as an incentive to get on the mailing list. There look to be a few more live shows on the way, at least three. And if you're on the mailing list, I promise you will be the first to know. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Let me tell you about my guest today. Alan Sparks is the Deputy Commissioner of the Mental Health Commission of New South Wales. He's been awarded the Cross of Valour, OAM, and the Commendation for Brave Conduct. He's a best-selling author, a speaker. He's a self-described rugby tragic. He sailed a boat around the world, a little one too, not a big one, with sails. You can find him on Twitter at Alan Sparks, A-L-L-A-N-S-P-A-R-K-E-S, or on Instagram, A-L-L-A-N-S-P-R-K-E-S underscore C-V. The C-V stands for the Cross of Valour. Now, Alan Sparks is one of Australia's most highly decorated citizens and a leader in the shift toward the inclusion of lived experience in the areas of mental wellness and suicide prevention. Alan is just one of five Australian heroes in the past 43 years to be awarded Australia's highest bravery decoration and civil award, the Cross of Valour. In 2017, in January, Alan was awarded the Medal of the Order of Australia, that's the OAM part of his name, uh, for his service to mental health support organisations and the community. In 2016, he was further awarded Australia's fourth highest bravery decoration, the Commendation for Brave Conduct, for saving the life of an Aboriginal man who had fallen onto train tracks at Redfern Railway Station in Sydney. Alan's life story is extraordinary. Like I said, he's circumnavigated the globe. He's a survivor of PTSD. He's a best-selling author. His book, The Cost of Bravery, is out. You can go and buy it. Um, to give you a bit of an insight in who Alan is, um, I've, I'm just going to read you this. Hang on. I'm just going to read you a description of what he was given his cross of bravery for. Uh, this is the uh, the account of the 
the event from Wikipedia and just try and put yourself in Alan's shoes as I go through this. It was uh, mid-morning on the 3rd of May 1996 when Alan Sparks, a detective senior constable with the New South Wales Police Force, was re- he rescued a boy trapped in a flooded underground stormwater drain following rainfalls, record rainfalls, at Coffs Harbour. Sparks and Detective Senior Constable Gavin Dengate responded to an urgent call for assistance to rescue a boy trapped in a flooded stormwater drain. From the entrance of the drain, an object believed to be the missing boy could be seen about 80 to 100 metres away. Tied to a rope, Sparks entered the drain and was rapidly washed 20 metres along the pipe by the ferocity of the current before realising the rope was inadequate. With a more substantial line, he re-entered the drain, even though breathing space in the pipe had been reduced by the rising floodwaters and his own size, the displacement of his body in the pipe. Floodwaters washed him some 80 metres downstream before he could establish that the object that they thought was the boy was only debris. The drain was now almost totally engulfed in floodwater, leaving only a small airspace Alan was now in danger of drowning as frantic attempts were made by his colleague and others to haul him against the flow to the surface. Although believing the child had little or no chance of survival, screams were heard further downstream in a pipe under a section of the Pacific Highway at the junction of six stormwater drains. Believing that the child was drowning and had to be rescued by the fastest means possible, Sparks and Dengate descended into the flooded pipe in total darkness without a lifeline torch or emergency air supply. As it was impossible to call to the child above the roar of the floodwater, the rescuers separately searched the maze of water pipes. After progressing deeper into the drainage system, Sparks could hear the desperate screams more clearly and believed he had located the boy's position. It was agreed that Dengate would search at ground level for another manhole closer to the child to facilitate a faster rescue. An ambulance officer, Michael Marr, then descended into the drains and remained in the flooded junction area to assist Sparks. Sparks secured a rope to himself and, with the aid of a torch, crawled back up the flooded drain. Exhausted, Sparks dragged himself against the flow, finally making contact with the child and managing to calm him. At this stage, Alan was 30 metres from the pipe opening and 3 metres underground. Alan Sparks managed to coax the boy into letting go of debris that he was holding onto and allow himself to be washed down the drain to where Sparks could grab and secure him. Alan then placed the boy in front of him and they were both washed down the pipe to the waiting ambulance officer. Alan suffered lacerations and abrasions to his back and shoulder and cuts to his fingers and feet from forcing himself against the flow of water. Throughout the rescue, Alan Sparks was aware that he was in grave danger of of losing his life as he believed that the whole of the stormwater system was only minutes away from being totally engulfed with flood water. Now, I don't know if you've ever looked, I'm sorry, I'm crying right now. I don't know if you've ever been in a stormwater drain or seen what a stormwater drain looks like, but Alan's not a small man. I don't know if you've ever been in an MRI machine, if you've ever been in that kind of tube, but if you could try and imagine being in that size of a tube, hearing the screams of a drowning child, <laughs> 80 metres down a pipe <laughs> with no air supply, but Alan just did it. He's such an incredible man. He's a powerful, resilient man. And even though this man was awarded for this incredible bravery, he's here to show us that his bravery 
is not defined by that particular moment. In fact, he's here to show us that strength and courage can actually look like asking for help. Strength and courage can also look like asking for help. This conversation does talk about suicide and suicidal ideation. So if that is a trigger for you, um, when Alan starts talking about, uh, he starts talking about a terrible diet and abusive cigarettes. If you skip forward about two and a half minutes, uh, we'll be on the other side. And then later, when you hear me asking about or talk, talking about turning points, you may want to jump forward about six minutes. <sighs> okay, we're good. We ready? Here we go. If you like this conversation, please let him know. He's on Twitter, Alan Sparks, A-L-L-I-N-S-P-R-K-E-S. He's also on Instagram, Alan Sparks underscore CV. Enjoy part one of this conversation with Alan Sparks. Morning, Alan. How are you? Uh, I'm really well, Asha. Thank you. <laughs> really, really well. Welcome. Welcome to the beautiful uh, eastern beachy part of Sydney called Bronte. Oh, no, crack of a Sydney morning, isn't it? Mm. We actually have this. Have you ever? Do you know what a cuckoo is? A, a channel build cuckoo. The bird. Yeah. Uh, not specifically, but yeah, cuckoos. Yes. And yeah, it's a bird. That its parents migrate down. We have one in this tree right here, and it'll probably come by later on. It parents migrate down from Papua New Guinea. Okay. Kill the eggs in the currawong's nest. Put their eggs in the currawong nest. The currawong doesn't know what it looks like, so the currawong sees a chick and goes, "Oh, it must be my baby." raises this child who is significantly larger than it. Like, it's like a chick to a chicken. It's massive. This humongous bird sits there with its mouth open all day going, ah, And it sits in that tree right there. It makes so much noise. It's extraordinary. So how long has the bird been there? Ah, about two months. Okay. Yeah. And then apparently, because I I got on Instagram, I'm like, what is this bird? I've never seen it out here. Because all the rainbow lorikeets, everyone was attacking it because they know that it kills the eggs. This is the one that eats the eggs. What's wild apparently is when the parents come back for it and they take it back to Papua New Guinea. <laughs> we'll have that baby now. Thank you very much. Thanks for looking at it. Isn't nature something? <laughs> yeah. Isn't yeah. nature just just something? But I, that's what I do love about living here is there's a, you know, you see it on black cockatoo here or there. And, yeah. You know, still very lucky. We live in a massive city and yet there's still wildlife. Yeah, the bird life is incredible. Um, we live in the inner west and the same deal. You know, the birds you see, the birds you hear. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's Fantastic, which tends to tell me the Sydney has cleaned its act up, so to speak, as far as our environment is concerned, yeah. compared to where I lived here many, many years ago when we had leaded fuel and the pollution rates were high and, yeah, so... Yeah, even when I first moved here in 99, um, we were working, our office was right on the harbour and there was still some fairly heavy industry right there. Yeah, yeah. You know? Cooks River and all those areas. Mm, yeah. yeah, and for, that happened for years. You know, just people just dumped the slide mm. straight in the water. I'm glad. Not glad a problem it. anymore. <laughs> I wouldn't eat the fish no. that feed off the bottom yeah. in the Sydney Harbour. No. <laughs> Plenty of people yeah. do. Where did you grow up? Uh, in the central west of New South Wales, so west, uh, between Orange and Dubbo, a little village called Cumnock. Uh-huh. Um, its population now teeters between 250 and 300. Wow. Back then it might have reached extraordinary numbers of 500. <laughs> wow. Yeah, but, but a great a great community. And I look back now and I think, well, quintessentially Australian, as in mm. if, when the community does well, everyone does well. Mm. If there's a crisis, the community bands together and looks after each other. 
And I think that's my most significant memory of the whole community just banding together to do things. And I think as a nation, perhaps, we've lost a lot of that. Yeah. I, I kind of envy that because I, I grew up in the suburbs, right? So I didn't have that, that experience of not only what you had geographic isolation, but also what that brings, which is the, well, if we're in trouble, we have to fix it. And also the the tightness of it, only 500 people, you pretty much know everyone by sight. Absolutely. 500 yeah. people. And that yeah. gives you an extraordinary sense of belonging and an extraordinary sense of my actions affect others. Yes. And being able to see the consequences, even if it's not you, if someone has argy-bargy down the pub and then suddenly you can see how that can throw 60 people out who are related to or, you know, know those people, you yeah. get a, gr a real grasp of the knock-on effect of that kind of stuff within a community, whereas in a massive city like this, it can be quite, you never see that person again. Correct. You know, and that's it's really interesting. So you went to, what kind of school was it? Was it like 30 kids there? No, it was a very large school, <laughs> maybe 100. <laughs> yeah, but I think there were, um, there were some combined classes, as in uh, fifth and sixth class, for example, mm. were in the same classroom, uh, third and fourth class. We didn't have the sporting capability that larger centres do. We still played sports, but, for example, um, we didn't have a cricket team, mm. but we had a footy team. Swimming was very popular, so we competed against other small towns in the area for swimming. And then I went to Orange High School uh, for years, what I remember as first form to sixth form, or year seven mm. to 12 now. And so I went from a school of 100 students to a school of 1,200 students. Yeah. So that was a massive shift for me in relation to just volume of people for a start and the, the lack of identity and the, the challenges of trying to assimilate into a new environment, with, make new friends, new peers. I was living away from home. Uh, it wasn't a boarding school per se, but I would board with, with people, mm. travelling of, of a Monday morning to school and travel home of a Friday afternoon. Right. So... I guess my life balance was was tipped there for a while, but then you um, you get used to the new environment and you you develop and grow and enjoy. So the the kind of Australia that you describe is the uh, you know the Australia that someone maybe from overseas would think of when they think of uh, our country. They think of the kind of you know country town that is you know held up by agriculture and you know there's a few key figures and the you know yeah. the, the good cop and the publican and the, yeah, yeah. you know the, the benevolent landowner and the stockman and the, yeah, you know and the, yeah. and the loving wives that dandy around them you know it's the picture book make the scones and the levingtons yeah exactly the, the it's the, on Saturday. exactly yeah. it's the kind, of, kind of the picture yeah. book of, of what it is um but with that and i'm sure you know uh, it, it would have affected you with that comes a kind of expectation of masculinity about what it is to be a man in that part of the world and the lessons that you would have learned about speaking around vulnerability or i don't feel okay i'm living away from home i'm a bit scared i'm grade eight and i live in someone else's house but i can't say it out loud like did you find that or did you have space for that i think that's living in a rural area like a western area we saw um, the good times and we saw the hard times. So what I did see was that when we had, a, say, a period of drought, for example, everybody suffered, but everybody just got on with it. And complaining was deemed to be a no-no. So it's a fine line between complaining and explaining how you're feeling. But 
it was sort of drummed into us from a very early age, don't be a whinger. And so if there was something that you were uncomfortable with or struggling with, to actually talk about it, I think we would have felt as though we were whinging and you just didn't whinge. You, you just got on with it or you fixed the problem. And I think that in hindsight, when things were really tough, you just had to tough it out and you knew that eventually the rains would come and the, the community would flourish again. But having said that, you were part of, of a community that was, everyone was affected. Whereas I see in today's different world, people can still be affected by an event. But I think today, it's not just an event that's affecting people. There's so many aspects of life today are affecting people, which I don't believe we have evolved quickly enough to manage and cope with. So we're living in a different world, far different mm. world. And, but I still, I still believe that that sense of community and support uh, is, is vital to our sustainability. For example, if, if there was a death in the community, then the community would rally around that family. You know, the, the, the truckloads of food would come in, the funeral would be organised, um, the wake would be put on by the community and everybody would get in and support. Where, and I think they're little examples of how a person or a family can be uh, able to be assisted through a crisis. And I think perhaps we need to look at the possibility of how do we, we rebuild that. Mm, I, would, I would agree. I would absolutely agree. Because we, we're, you had the, the fortune of growing up in a community that was big enough yet small enough to provide all those things that we as humans, that we flourish because of communities of that size. Now that even though we sit in a city of, what, four and a half million people now, maybe yeah. five, it's big. So it's, a, what, 100,000 times bigger yeah. than the city you grew up in. Yet the community that we're surrounded by has shrunk so much. You know, we sit in these these boxes uh, with a house, you know, and we don't maybe don't know the people two doors down. We might know the person next door, but maybe not two doors yeah. down. And if some if we feel in trouble, we feel so alone. Even Correct. though within a kilometre of us, there's probably more people than you grew up with in your own village. Correct. You know. <laughs> but having said that, I am very fortunate to be involved in the tribal warrior community in Redfern, the indigenous community in Redfern. And that, to me, is indicative of rural community. It's, it's a group of, of people led by indig elders who have created this environment, which is just extraordinary. It's like, it's like a little bush village um, in, in, this, in this city. And I think for me, coming from the bush, um, I can integrate into that very, very easily because it's what I know, what I love, what I feel. And I'm so, and again, that, that um, Indige community epitomises the simplicity that all, is all it takes is to help people just by sticking together, understanding, recognising and helping. Yeah. When, you, uh, when you're going to high school in Orange, are, what, are your, what are your options? Are you, is it I'm going to go back out once I finish this, I only have to stay till grade 10, then I'll go back out and drive a tractor or is it, um, you know, I might go get a trade or I might go even further east and go to a university in Sydney perhaps or maybe south of Canberra or Melbourne? What are, you, what are your options? Well, I always wanted to go to university to become a geologist. So I used to love fossicking around and um, we had an opal mine up at Glengarry out from Lightning Ridge and I just loved chasing and hunting gold and, and minerals. So I had a, 
my plan was to go to university to study geology. Um, no one in my family had ever gone to university, so nobody knew about what it means to go to university, what, what's involved. But uh, I remember we were driving in towards Orange one day with my dad, and he said, oh, mate, I need to have a talk to you about this idea of yours to become a geologist. And I was thinking, oh, great, he's going to support me. And he said, look, I'm really sorry, but we just can't afford to send you to university. Now, I just didn't realise that there were other options as far as how to get to university or whatever, but that was basically, that plan was shut off there automatically. And I never questioned my dad. It was like, okay, well, that's the way it is, so go to plan, what's your next option? And at that stage, I was... I guess I was starting to find myself a little bit and I realised that I needed to do something that would provide variety and excitement and stimulation and I'm not exactly sure how or why but something came into my mind about being a police officer and the more I sort of looked into it I thought yeah that, that provides a pretty good idea. So um, I knew that I had to wait until I was 19 to, to join up um, I was a year young for my for my school, so I sort of set a plan that I would um, leave do my HSC and then I would go back to my community and work there until I could go to Sydney, which is exactly what I did do. I did my HSC, and then I um, went back and I worked on farms as a jackaroo. Um, got some work in the shearing shed, starting off rouseabouting. Then I went progressed to being um, uh, become a wool presser. And then I went and became a shearer. So I loved the sheds. The sheds were just a fantastic work environment because it was one of those areas where the harder you worked, the more you weren't, particularly as a shearer. But it was one of those aspects, Osha, that everybody had to work really hard to support each other to make the machine work itself. So we all got in and we worked hard and we were respected for working really hard. And I just loved that camaraderie and the environment. And so I left the sheds and two weeks after I turned 19, I arrived at Redfern Police Academy, uh, ready to start a career as a New South Wales wow. police officer. Mm. Just, I just want to hit pause on that for a second. Like I only know anything about shearing sheds from stuff that Shannon Knoll told me because <laughs> he, he, he worked there. Australian folk songs and um, and stories of, you know, guys in their 30s who don't know how to do anything else but have to take amphetamines to try and keep up with young 18-year-olds that keep showing up okay. and outdoing them okay. and they're running out of sheep to shear. What's the... God, this, this, what's the sound like? What's the smell like? What's it like in a shearing shed? Uh, well, it's very noisy, yeah, because there's uh, most of the sheds that I worked in what they call a four-stand shed. So a stand is where a shearer stands or leans over to shear a sheep and they then push the sheep down a chute. So most of these were four-stand sheds, so you had four machines running at one time. There was a lot of noise, uh, yeah, shearers calling out for assistance or... Uh, the presses were calling for more wool or the, the wool classes were calling out. Uh, so there was a, it was a lot of noise, a lot of activity, a lot of, it was very vibrant, um, but a very positive environment. Yeah. And it was one of those work teams where if you didn't pull your weight, you would not be asked to come back and you were given the short shift very quickly. So the fact that we all relied on each other um, created this, this wonderful sense of connection and 
um, and looking out for each other because yeah. as a rouse about, you're there mindful of, you know, when's that shearer going to finish that sheep so I've got to pick up that fleece and I've got to make sure I can pick that up, get that on the table and then pick up this one and sweep away or provide some tar or some cotton and, and a needle to sew up a sheep or something. <laughs> so you're very mindful of what people are doing and that sort of gives you, I think, a good insight into, well, how is this person actually able to work this hard this long and you spoke about amphetamines before i mean i'm talking shearing now we gosh 40 odd years ago so drugs were not an issue back then um perhaps out, the overconsumption of alcohol might have been a problem for some yeah. of the shearers but it was just a great place and i was really torn as to do i stay and keep shearing or do i cut my ties and, and go go to the big smoke and um there's one particular farmer who I was actually working in, in, um, in his shed for a fair while and he said, mate, don't don't go to Sydney, don't go to Sydney. He said, you, you're going to be a gun shearer. And at that stage I was playing rugby for my home team and I, and I was really loving my rugby and I wanted to do really well with my rugby. So, so a lot was, was holding me. My parents were ambivalent. Well, you do what you want to do. It's your life. But in the end I thought, no, I'll go to Sydney and if it doesn't work out, I've got a backstop. Yeah. I can come back. Mm-hmm. Yeah, would have been an incredible like because you could have, you could have stayed and been the hero player of the the local team. You could have stayed and been the hero amongst these men. Who wouldn't want that? You go home at the end of every night going, "I'm the best." Um, yeah. And I, that's a what a brilliant way to live. Yeah, what a great life. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but but also I realised that um, I I could see a lot of men who were not all that old, whose capability to continue working was very limited. Like you want to talk about this is a time before OHS. This is a time before anything like that. Yeah. Like you show up, you've got a fresh back. Yeah. <laughs> before white tooth combs yeah. and before they had the harnesses you could actually lean into. Yeah. So the industry changed quite dramatically around the time that I left. Yeah. Uh, and for the better, I have to say. Oh, that's fantastic. Mm. And but then I guess you, you then show up. You're not a small man, Alan. You show up at Redfern Police Academy after a year of shearing and playing rugby, you would have had some meat on your bones, man. Well, I, actually, it wasn't all that big. I mean, I was, I think my fat content might have been about 4% or something. I was super fit. Yeah. Because um, when you get the academy, they, they run fitness tests. And I think yeah. I was the second fittest out of my whole class. Yeah. The only other person who was fitter was a guy, um, I remember it was Guy Towns, Paul Towns, I beg your pardon. And Paul was playing first grade for St George back then. Right. So, yeah, so I, I was very, um, very happy with my fitness levels, my um, my weight and all the things. But then at the academy they had this thing called a, a canteen and this canteen sold food that we didn't get in the bush. <laughs> <laughs> so it was, it was a bit of a challenge there for a while to, yeah, to make yeah, sure yeah. I, I kept on top of it. When you got to the police academy in Redfern, I can only imagine that it's, I mean, as a police officer, we as a society, we we collectively, we pay taxes so that a group of people can go out to the fringes and make sure that everyone's kind of keeping up with the social contract of like, this is an acceptable form of behaviour that we all have so we can all live here, all right? But if you, if you don't want to do that, I don't want to be the one to have to tell you no because it's dangerous, so I'm going to pay someone else to go and do it. And that's your job as a police officer. And I can only imagine the kind of psychological callousing that you would need to do within the academy to steal you to get ready for that kind of stuff. In principle, that's a great idea. <laughs> in reality, it doesn't work that really? way. Really? Yeah. I mean, back then, it was still it was quite militarised. Yeah. So um, the instructors uh, 
took great delight in belittling you, humiliating you, testing you, challenging you. And in some ways, they may have been thinking that of preparing us for some aggression that we may face in the streets when we, when we graduate. But there was also the aspect of you will do as you are told and you'll do it now. There will be no questioning. And I, I understand that there are time and place for that. But it was sort of dehumanising you in a way. Did it actually assist us to cope with what life was like on the streets? Yeah, I'd, I'd really, really challenge that. Because at the end of the day, you are who you are. And your core as a human being is how you'll either be affected or how you'll affect others, especially uh, when, you're, when you're on the street. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. I, uh, I was having a conversation with someone the other day because I, I, I ride my bicycle a lot. And um, he goes, mate, I know you ride, but... This cyclist the other day, I swear, man, he just, you know, I did the smallest thing and he just gave me so much lip. I'm like, yeah, I understand that. I'm sorry. Some cyclists are idiots. But all I can think of in my heart is like knowing what it's like to ride on the streets of Sydney. He's probably spent the last 15 minutes riding and in those 15 minutes has nearly died three times. So it's maybe a bit on edge. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I can't even imagine what it's like to spend a shift uh, as a police officer in the inner city of Sydney? Well, my first station, <laughs> uh, once I graduated, because going back back then, Osh, uh, you did 12 weeks. Mm-hmm. And at the end of your 12 weeks, you were given a uniform, a gun, handcuffs, and for men, we had a little pocket baton. And, and away you went. You, you were a cop on the street. So my first station was Darlinghurst. Oh, yeah. So I've come from the shearing sheds of Cumnock into... Darlinghurst, head Which station number three division. King's Cross. King's Cross, yeah. Darlinghurst, uh, parts of Surrey Hills, Woolloomooloo. And it was like I'd been transported to Mars because it was a completely different world. Yeah. The police officers who were there then, they seemed like they were eight feet tall and seven feet across. They just seemed to be so big. And... We our station was next door to a centre called Caritas, which was a mental health uh, facility. And I still remember, so standing outside Darlinghurst Police Station, watching people walk down um, Forbes Street towards Caritas, in various states of of mental distress. Or I, still, I can still picture one guy he had on a bright silver set of overalls, with a TV on his head, as in literally covering his head. 
And I've looked at him and I've looked at the, the coppers beside me and as much as say, look at that, and he's going, oh, what, are you, what are you worried about, mate? This is Darlow. Like, yeah, we had all sorts here. And there's another one where a, a guy rushed into the inquiry counter and he said, oh, I've, I've just killed my wife. And the station constable said, oh, yeah, mate, um, how'd you kill her? He said, with an axe. And this is a, like, it was a really hot summer's day and everyone was a bit afraid or whatever. And he said, oh, just piss off here. <laughs> Get out of here. And the bloke just walked out and somebody said, uh, we actually better check on that. <laughs> so they went and grabbed him, and sure enough, he chopped his wife up with an axe. Oh, good lord! Yeah, so yeah, suddenly my my world was a whole lot different, Osh, to what it, what I'd been used to as a kid growing up. How do you how do you go home at the end of the day? Like something so horrific as that, as someone a man that's murdered his wife with an axe. How do you then go home at the end of the day? And like, Hi, honey. How's your day? Well, interesting. I mean, I I could certainly open up my memory banks if I, if I chose to do so. But my first year as a cop, it was every shift was just so exciting yeah. because it was so different, it was so challenging. And I saw things and did things that you could never imagine you could possibly do. Yeah. So I graduated about, I think, um, June of 77. Um, 78, I was um, down at the scene of the Hilton bombing. To see that sort of devastation was just, it was, pardon me, it was absolutely mind-boggling. I think uh, my, if somebody said, what's your most vivid memory of, of your first 12 months, it would have been the amount of death that I saw and not pleasant death at all, not hospital death, but very, very unpleasant. But it was a case of, well, you're a cop, mate. This is what you, this is what you have to deal with. And, and again, uh, we, we had a wonderful sense of camaraderie in, in the guys and the women I work with. We had the first three women to ever work in general duties in, in the New South Wales Police Force history were at Darlinghurst. And they were fantastic, fantastic cops. So it was a sense of, well, we're all in this together. Yeah. A bit like I referred to as a kid growing up. Yeah. If, there's a, if there's a situation, if there's a problem, we're all in this together. Yeah. So we're going to deal with this. And um, certainly... A lot of it was uh, the impact but had it might have been sort of tempered a bit by, by having a few beers, sometimes maybe a few too many beers. Yeah. But it was this, this is your responsibility. You, you've taken this job on and, and you're going to do it. Yeah. And I mean, I mean, I haven't seen anywhere near what you've seen, but I know that the few things that I have seen, um, my mum and dad were both doctors and so in a time before mobile phones and when drink driving was half of the course in the late 70s and early 80s we stopped at a lot of car accidents you know? yeah so you know we we saw some we saw some pretty grim stuff yeah when we were little kids but i can't imagine what it's like to just see that every day every single um, day and how hard you have to make yourself to not because you're a human being in the end you're an empathetic man you know i can tell that it, you know, do you do you feel that you need to lose a part of yourself in order to do the gig? I think it's vitally important that you have developed the capability to turn on and off. Mm. That's because as a first responder, and I'm talking about cops, fireys and paramedics, as a first responder, there are times where you need to be um, completely devoid of, of emotion and feeling. But you've got to be able to turn that back on again. And that's, I think, something that can be can be taught. Mm. 
I think people, some people have the natural ability to do that. But it, that's imperative. And if you are to survive, then you need to, to develop that. But understanding that um, there are times where you're going to have to be really, really hard and really, really tough. Yeah. Would you say that you dealt with it better than other people? No. I think that I never witnessed any evidence of anyone not coping in my early years in the career. Certainly there was a perception that, uh, mate, weakness will not be tolerated. And and there was, again, that fine line, well, what is weakness? Uh, be, by showing emotion, is that showing weakness? And, but I think it was accepted that, yeah, you could be you could be upset by stuff that you experienced, but you wouldn't you're not going to let it get to you, so to speak. Yeah. And but also I think that we did maintain high levels of fitness. Our shift work, whilst shift work can be detrimental to your physiological health, back then we worked far more regulated shifts than what they do or have done for a number of years. So, for example, we would work a number of morning shifts, we would then switch into a number of night shifts, we would then switch into a number of afternoon shifts. So we would know a month in advance what our shifts were, and because we worked eight-hour shifts, we were able to then develop regulated sleep patterns so we didn't become sleep-deprived like they do today. So operationally, there's a lot different to what it was then, which allowed us, I believe, to cope. And, and manage our physiological health a lot better. Yeah, yeah. When you do, I mean, obviously you, you, you love the job and you're good at it and you, you stayed at it and um, you, moved, you moved around a bit though, didn't you? Uh, yeah, I did. I mean, I, I went from Darlinghurst across to King's Cross, walking the beat there, which was just, I think, one of my <laughs> fondest memories of yeah. being a cop, you know, walking the streets of King's Cross back in the heyday. Yeah. Um, I mean, our, our police shifted on a night shift at King's Cross there was one police officer in the station and two on the beat that's so, it that was it oh yeah. man so um, because of the the traffic bank ups and things the cars and trucks couldn't get in to support you if you needed assistance so yeah. you learned to handle yourself pretty well pretty yeah. quickly um, but, but again it was so exciting and yeah. so so much variety then I went into plain clothes um, did my my training at, um, at Darlinghurst and a couple of other areas and at the CIB, went back to Darlinghurst, um, worked there, went to the detectives training course as an instructor, uh, ended up at the breaking squad and then moved to Coffs Harbour in 89. Yeah. And that must have been a bit of a decompression to get out of King's Cross and Darlinghurst and not back in Coffs. Well, I, I left the, the, the breaking squad at the CIB to go to Coffs Harbour. Um, the breaking squad, we were doing some amazing work. I mean, we were essentially targeting the underworld of Sydney and doing some phenomenal jobs. And you know, it, was, it was very, very exciting, um, very challenging, quite dangerous at times. But to go to Coffs, I mean, Coffs was a very busy area. It was a huge amount of work, but it wasn't the same uh, level of criminality as what we experienced in Sydney. So it was a very different environment. And also... The, the big difference I saw was that working Coffs Harbour, you could uh, assimilate into the community, whereas in Sydney, you didn't. You you stuck with your squad members and your, your squad members' families, and that was basically your world, whereas yeah. in Coffs, it, we, it was like a whole new world opening up again for me in relation to my life and my police career. Yeah, and knowing and obviously like being a little more like where you grew up, where people knew you in the street where people knew you when you were doing your groceries. Yeah, exactly right. Yeah. Which was good and bad. 
Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> well, you put my uncle away, that kind of thing. <laughs> uh, just, I mean, sometimes you, you like to have some privacy. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but I, I love sport and um, my then girlfriend, my now my now wife, uh, we, Deb was a sports fanatic, so we became involved in, in playing rugby, playing touch footy, yeah. basketball. We, we had a very, very extensive social network throughout sport, which, again, was a wonderful thing. To what extent do you feel that physicality helped you maintain a, a stable mental space? In hindsight, Osh, I realised that I was able to maintain um, a really good work-life balance because of a number of factors. One was my level of uh, physiological health, my high levels of uh, physical fitness because I, A, for the sport I was playing and B, uh, professionally I had to remain very fit because of my special weapons unit training. I had a lot to do outside of my police work which gave me the ability to laugh, have fun, be with really positive people. So I could discharge all the negative energy that might have been developed and you know, I was able to sleep really well, had the opportunity to eat really well. And so they're the things that I, I realised were overall critical to my ability to maintain the demands of my work environment. And that continued for, for most of my career until the last, um, last three years. And what was it that changed in the last three years? The, in, again, with the benefit of hindsight, um, I realised that... I went from a, a, a state of uh, very high levels of physiological health to developing reasonably quickly uh, a state of chronic stress that I hadn't ever experienced before. And being in a state of chronic stress as a first responder, you become very vulnerable to critical incidents and how they can impact on you. So I was chronically stressed um, at the time where a terrible incident occurred at Crescent Head, where two of my colleagues were murdered. And my involvement in that particular night um, had such a significant impact on me. But because I was chronically stressed, I had no resilience to be able to overcome the impact of that incident. So my chronic stress then switched into a state of the development of mental illnesses, trauma-related mental illnesses. And... The, the decline of my physical health continued and then I was involved in, a, in another critical incident that essentially was the straw that broke the camel's back and I then developed full-blown trauma-related mental illnesses. And again, um, it, it, the decline of my health continued. And, but also I contributed to that you know, by, by my consumption of, of alcohol sleep deprivation, uh, lack of movement, lack of exercise, oh, terrible diet, abuse of cigarettes, all that sort of stuff. So, And the stigma of mental illness in the police force or in our community back then was so significant that had I disclosed that I was not well, I knew that my career would have ended or would have been, my, my future path would have, would have been stopped. And I didn't want to do that. And so you, you just don't don't disclose. And then, unfortunately, the um, the mental illnesses over overtook my life, 
and I started to develop those um, classic symptoms of or emotions of um, people who are suicidal. You big sense of absolute worthlessness and hopelessness and the physical agony you go through. And um, rightly or wrongly, for me, the only option was to um, end the pain and withstand my life. I certainly relate to that. Yeah, <laughs> I've yeah. been there. And, and I know, uh, and I'll get to this, but because of the book that you, sir, encouraged me to write, um, I can tell you that you and I are not alone in that Correct. at all. Uh, and it, in many ways, it seems... And I can. I wonder sometimes: is it, is it like a sneeze? Is it like a physiological reaction that some part of our brain goes, "Oh, we've reached this level. Here's the answer." I wonder, you know, if it's like. I wonder if it's like that. It, it's to, to talk about the alcohol for a second and the slippery slope. It's the, the analogy of the you know the frog in the boiling water. The frog. Have you heard about this one? Yes. Yeah, the frog doesn't. The fr frog regulates its temperature. It's a cold-blooded animal. Cold-blooded cold -blooded animal regulates the temperature due to the outside uh, environment. And if you put it, whoever figured this out, it's a bit cruel. Bit cruel, but it happened. It was like 1600s or something. Put a frog in cold water and started to heat the pan. The frog, if you put a frog in boiling water, it'll jump out straight away. But if you put a frog in cold water and start to heat the pan slowly, it will not jump out and it will boil to death because it doesn't realise that this is what's happening. Yep. And as the blocks of the Jenga tower start to get pulled away, um, we reach for the things that have worked in the past. And I sometimes at the end of the day uh, of a long week, I'll see Audrey, you know, oh, that was a heck of a week and she'll have one glass of wine. And I look at her, I can't do that because I'm sober, but I look at her and I'm like, I miss that gear change. I miss that instant gear change from stress to, ah. Yeah. Because for me, it wasn't one. It was, <laughs> it just it wouldn't stop. It was like opening the floodgates yeah. of love and her dam and it, it and unable to stop it until, you know, it was vomit on the floor and someone was upset at me. But you don't notice it when it starts to happen. It's just all, and people around you don't notice it. it they also just appreciate the slow, creeping, insidiousness of the coping mechanisms that start to define you now. Um, oh, they're just going through a tough time. They don't stop to question themselves. Like, it's been 10 weeks, <laughs> you know? Um, and when you're in it, you can't see it either. Yeah, for me, I, I equate it to two paths, like two highway lanes. And this highway is going from A to B, and B is not a good place. In the outside lane is the symptoms of the trauma-related mental illness, PTSD and depression. So you've got those symptoms in, in this lane, but in the lane beside you, you've got the things associated with the stigma, the fear of why can't I cope? What are people gonna think about me? What if I, what if I do disclose? And you, you develop this terrible fear about the possibility that you are mentally ill. And these two vehicles containing the symptoms are heading down this path that you know is going to come to a crashing end. And sometimes the occupants of these vehicles interrelate. They get in and out of each other's car, and so to speak. Then they start to get all mixed up and joined and then suddenly one car peters out 
and all all the passengers of that car go into the other one and everyone piles in together and you're on this 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 car that's going faster and faster and faster now because you know that you're coming to this crashing end and there's not a goddamn thing you can do about it so i think it's so important that we understand that it's not just the mental illness it's the stuff that goes with it that can come in and and really make this such a a problem you cannot manage and you cannot deal with and i think that's one of the issues today um people don't really understand because they have failed to capitalise on the knowledge of people with lived experience that you and I have and so many others. Fortunately, oh, there's a shift in that, that, oh, hang on a minute, we better start talking to the people who know what this stuff's really like, <laughs> which is great. Yeah. Um, and it's not too late. You know, we can always learn from it. Yeah. But for me, Osh, um, did I ever think that there's any possibility I could ever end up in that state? No, there was yeah. just no way, absolutely no way. Why? You'd lived your whole life as this super cop you know you're over six foot tall you're you're a strapping man you've only ever been the fittest of fit you've had you've been the bravest person on the face of the planet you've done the most extraordinary feats of bravery and like your story of how you won that medal like like why would you ever think that you could be vulnerable you well, bulletproof no you you and and, and I thank you for, for your kind words, but the reality is um, there have been, there are tens and tens of thousands of first responders who are exactly the same. Um, they, they have extraordinary courage because they have this infinite willingness to care for people. And I think that's one of the hard things to grasp. When, when you actually develop a mental illness, you struggle with that. Like, how... This can't be me. So you go into a state of denial. And today, you know, you hear so much about, well, just speak up. Well, sorry, but I don't want to admit that I'm not well. I don't want to admit that I can't cope. I don't want to admit that I'm struggling. Because if I do, that acknowledges the mental illness. And I don't want to acknowledge it. (laughs) I I want to get away from this. So that's one of the reasons why I believe that the people will not talk about it. Because we just don't want to acknowledge it. Yeah. And... We, we, by getting help, that again is acknowledging it. We want to get through this. We want to be able to survive and keep going. And just give me another bottle. I'll be right, you know. It's okay. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know much, but I can tell you this. Nothing terrible was ever made less terrible by drinking and using. Exactly. The only thing that happens is it gets more terrible. <laughs> but what, what I didn't know back then, Osh, was what I could have done to start to pull that vehicle back, to slow it down. Yeah. And that's the information that is so vital that we are not getting to people today. Mm. How to slow that thing down, how to make it do a U-turn and head back the other way. That was part one of my conversation with Alan Sparks. You can find Alan on Twitter and Instagram. He's online, Alan Sparks, A-L-L-I-N-S-P-R-K-E-S. And his Instagram is Alan Sparks underscore C-V. Part two of the conversation that he and I have will come out on Wednesday. And in that conversation, Alan opens up about the turning point in his own mental health journey. I said, look, I've just gone completely mad. And he said, no, you haven't gone mad. You have mental illness. Um, you have post-traumatic stress disorder. And I didn't know what PTSD was. And he said, you know, you're, you're clearly terribly depressed as well. 
So I said, if you want to live, I, I can try and help you. No guarantee, but I'll try and help you. And I think that was the first time in a long, long time that I had any sense of hope that maybe I could get better, maybe, just maybe. A big thank you to everybody that helped make the show today. Alan, of course, for being here. Rachel Barrett, my incredible show producer. Andy Ma, my audio producer. Mike Mills, also known as Toe Hider on the music. And you for listening. Thank you so much for being here for part one. I'll see you on Wednesday with part two. Until we talk then, sleep well and dream of beautiful things. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.